welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill, beside the way where the paths meet. She cries out by the gates, at the entry of the city, at the entrance of the doors. To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. We pray with me. Father, as we approach your courts, we hear the song of wisdom beckoning us to enter into your presence. We ask that you would cause our hearts, souls, minds on our strength to be ready to meet you for this glorious act of covenant renewal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who are in awe of him. In your bulletin, you'll see that our responsive reading this week is coming from Psalm 8. We're going to be um, calling and responding to uh, verses 1 through 5. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth! Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. Lift up your hearts. Let's pray. Our mighty and glorious Father in heaven, your name is excellent in all the earth. Your glory exceeds the highest of the highest heavens. Enemies, avengers, and the powerful all find themselves silenced in your glorious presence. The powerful find their mouths stopped, but tiny, helpless infants and nursing babies bring forth strength made perfect. In the midst of this created, created world, you have placed your son and have crowned him with glory and honor. This Jesus, our captain and our king, is the only reason why we would dare show our face in your holy temple. He is worthy, and in your infinite kindness, you gave us his righteousness so that we might be called your children and we might come boldly into your house and expect to find mercy and help in our time of need. We ask that you would hear our worship to you this morning as coming not from sinful creatures undone in our sin, but rather from those redeemed saints who have been made righteous by the good and perfect work of Christ. We ask for you to accept our worship in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. Here at Christ Covenant Church, we often have a reading plan that we're reading together as a church. We just finished our To the Word Bible Challenge. Um, Now we're going uh, to our same page summer reading challenge. You can grab a copy out front if you want it. But we also use something called the lectionary. 
And the lectionary is something that the church um, historically has used to structure um, worship each, each, each Lord's Day. And so we follow the lectionary when we build our order of service each week. And in our lectionary reading um, this week, which you can find on the front of your order of service, we find ourselves in the book of Acts. Now, the passage that we're going to look at, or the passage that's in our lectionary, it follows the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Now, if you remember, men from around the world, men and women from around the world, um, uh, on the day of Pentecost, heard in their own language, miraculously, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's descending upon all these believers, and they go out and they speak in actual languages so people can hear the gospel. And we also know in the, in the uh, New Testament narrative, there is, always a, um, there is always a present mocker. There is always present mockers and fools wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is going. And so right on cue, when the men of Israel saw this, the unbelieving men of Israel saw this, they claimed of all things that the Holy Spirit filled men, these men speaking in languages that they didn't know, they claimed that they were drunk. You know, of course, that, that's exactly what I do. If I was to be drunk, I would speak in a language I didn't know. So Peter castigates this crowd. He's, he's frustrated with them. He castigates them because they refuse to believe even obvious signs and wonders. And he says this. He says, quote, Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, As you yourselves also know, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Close quote. You see, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Jews at that time, professing to be wise, became fools in their hatred of Jesus. And in doing so, they acted out the most insanely unwise idea of all time. And they put to death the king of glory. Now, this insane unwisdom, this insane foolishness, was all due to rebellious self-deception. Self-deception. Self-deception is awful, and there's no earthly way to guard against it. And everyone who is born is hopelessly enslaved to it. Notice, though, there is no earthly way to guard against self-deception. There is a way to break through the curse of the fool's self-deception. There is an antidote. We read it when we opened our worship service. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 8, he says, quote, Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift her voice? That's what wisdom is doing. Wisdom is personified. And wisdom in, in, the God, in, in Proverbs 8 goes on to say, quote, Counsel is mine. This is wisdom talking. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength. By me, kings reign. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Close quote. So, how are we, as God's people, able to escape the fool's hell of self-deception? How do we get out? What is the antidote? Well, it starts with wisdom. And wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. We are promised that those who seek wisdom diligently will find her. But... There can be no seeking wisdom without first the fear of the Lord, and there cannot be fear of the Lord if there is not first confession of sin. So, as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Scripture says in Isaiah 6, 5, Woe to me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we come before you to confess our sins as a covenant people. We are undone in our sin. We know we don't belong here in your presence because we are a people of unclean hands, hearts, and lips. We bring nothing to you but our sin and our deceptions. We frequently stray, worshiping other gods in our selfish boredom. We profane your image by worshiping the creation instead of you, the creator. We blaspheme your name by speaking lies, attributing things to you that you have forbidden. As a people, we profane the Sabbath day. We dishonor our parents. We murder our children through abortion, and we murder our brother in anger in our hearts. We lust after what we cannot have, committing adultery in our hearts. 
We steal instead of laboring for your glory. We bear false witness against our neighbor instead of speaking the truth in love. And we are hopelessly lost in our desire to consume, consume, consume that which does not belong to us. We are hopelessly self-deceived without the wisdom that is the spirit of Jesus Christ, who has existed from the beginning before there was ever an earth. We confess these sins to you, and we ask that you not mark our iniquities against us and not take your Holy Spirit from us. Please forgive us our corporate sins, Father, so that you may be feared. It's now a time to confess your own private sins during this time of silence. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe it. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Let's sing the doxology in response to this glorious news. Good morning. morning. Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be reading the first five, or sorry, first seven verses. These are the words of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. These are the words of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us into your presence this morning. We ask that you would shape us and mold us by the power of your spirit through the preaching of your word. Father, open our ears and our hearts to receive it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Children imitate their parents. We see this all the time. As I have uh, stepped more and more into um, a preaching ministry, I have heard time and time again how I sound like my dad. And, and I sound like my dad, not because I try to, but because I grew up with him. Uh, you all know this as you look at the people around you, the kids around you. You see them imitating their parents. They walk like them. They start to talk like them. They do the same weird things that their parents do. Why is this? Well, it's because children love and look up to their parents. That children um, have a natural love and devotion to their parents and they look up to them, they respect them. And of course, this is not, they don't, children don't respect their parents all the time, but they respect them in the sense that they, they look up to them, they see them, those are the ones that they are imitating in how to live and how to walk and how to go about their lives. We know also that students become like their teachers. Students naturally gravitate towards the teachers that they love and they begin to imitate them in the way that they talk and think, analyze things. People adopt all manner of fads and fashions based on what the people that they like are doing. This is why the ad industry, the the marketing industry is so successful. There's so much money in creating ads to get you to imitate the people that you think are cool the people that you think are successful. We naturally imitate those people that we are drawn towards. Sometimes these imitations are natural and good, and other times these imitations are sinful and wrong. Imitation, whether it's good or bad, what determines whether it's good or bad, in large part has to do with, on the one hand, the motive of the one who is doing the imitating, but secondly, on the object of that imitation. 
Imitation is clearly rooted in a love of something. You don't imitate something unless at some level you love it. And therefore, imitation is also deeply related to worship. And so when we come to this next section in Ephesians, we should be struck by Paul's command here at the beginning. Be imitators of God. Uh, Remember that in the book of Ephesians, this letter that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, the first three chapters, in the first three chapters, there are basically no commands. No commands given. It's simply laying out the doctrine of who God is and what he has done with a great emphasis on the grace of God, the unconditional love of God for those that he has chosen. And Paul works uh, hard to, to express to the Ephesians and to express to them and pray for them that they would know this love of God, this grace of God. And yet it's in the context of that that he then, in chapters four, five, and six, give these commands, these very specific commands and exhortations of what Christians should do and what Christians should not do. He's been very clear about that we are to walk in certain ways and not walk in other ways. And as we, the last time we were looking at Ephesians, I mentioned that Paul, in, in this section, starts to really meddle in people's lives. Paul gets really specific about the kinds of things that he's talking about. And, uh, and it hurts sometimes because it's true, because we know it's true. And so as we go through this section, bear these things in mind. Bear these things in mind that God has specific commands for you from these passages, from these verses. But these commands are for, for you if, and only if, God loves you. These commands are for you because God loves you. These commands are for you and they will change your lives because God loves you. And so, be imitators of God. This is how Paul begins this next section, which is really not a new section. Uh, Paul goes, uh, if you jump, if, you're, if you have your Bibles open, look up at... Um, verses 22 and 23 and 24, where Paul describes what the Christian life is supposed to be like. We're not supposed to walk in the ways of uh, what Paul says, the Gentiles and the futility of their mind, not knowing God. Their understanding is dark and they've given themselves over to their lusts. But in verses 22 and 23 and 24 of chapter four, he says that we are as Christians to put on the new man, having put off the old man. And then verses 25 through 32 are very specific instances that Paul gives of what it means to put on the new man, to put off the old man. So we're to put off things like lying, things like ungodly anger, stealing, corrupt or rotten speech. And instead we're to put on truth, trusting God with our emotions, not stealing, but but working with our hands, seeking to give to others building one another up with our speech. And with all of this in mind, then he ends this section, or it ends the, this, the last passage that we looked at, verse 32, with an exhortation to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And so then, chapter five, verse one, therefore, be imitators of God. So why be imitators of God? We therefore imitate God because we have been forgiven. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. What's the the therefore, therefore? It's there because Paul had said, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, imitate him. Imitate God because you have been forgiven. God has cleansed us from our sin. Chapter two, Paul told us that, that God loved us as dead sinners. While we were still dead in our sins, God raised us to new life because of the love with which he loved us. And he gave us life, and that life, at the core of that life is the ability to love God. He loved us, and so we love him. And then if we love God, we also imitate him. This is natural. If we, if we do love God, naturally we imitate him, just like a child naturally imitates the parents that he loves, just like a student naturally imitates the teachers that he loves. In 1 Peter 1, uh, 15 and 16, 
Peter gives sort of an example of this. Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. God is a holy God. There's no darkness in him. There's no sin in him. Sin is opposed to God. It's opposed to his law. And so God calls his people to imitate him, to be holy as he is holy. Why? Because he has chosen them, because he has called them out. And so here in in Ephesians, Paul is telling forgiven people to imitate God, particularly in his forgiveness. We are to forgive like God does because we understand how much we have been forgiven. And this is, in some ways, one of the hardest things for Christians to do. It is hard to forgive. It is hard to forgive those that have wronged you. It's hard to forgive those who have spitefully used you, as Jesus would say. It's hard to forgive those that just bug you, right? It's hard to forgive your brother or your sister when they keep breaking your toys. It's hard to forgive your brother or sister when they keep taking the best seat at the table. It's hard to forgive your husband when he is just checked out all the time, doesn't seem to really understand you. It's really hard to forgive your wife when she speaks to you that way. It's really hard to forgive. Why is it so hard? It's so hard because we forget. We forget how much we have been forgiven. That's, that's really why it's hard to forgive. As Christians, as unbelievers, it totally makes sense not to forgive. There's no reason to forgive unless it's convenient. But most of the time, it's not particularly convenient or certainly doesn't seem convenient to forgive somebody. Right? It seems much more convenient to demand justice. To, to demand that things be put right, that you be paid back. And of course, sometimes those things do need to take place. But the reason that forgiveness is really hard as Christians is simply because we forget. Because you forget or you haven't realized or you haven't embraced how much you have been forgiven. What have you been forgiven for? Every evil word that slipped out of your mouth every evil word that you intended, every evil word that just slipped out out of habit is forgiven. Every evil thought, every single one, every evil uh, malicious thought towards your neighbor, every lustful thought that you've had, every thought towards lying or stealing, it's all forgiven. Every single one of them. Every single action, sinful action that you have committed against somebody else, or maybe just privately between you and God, every single one of them is forgiven. Do you know that? Do you understand the the unconditional love and grace of God? He loved you not because you were something, Not because you had anything to bring to the table. The the only thing that you had to bring was your rotten, stinking, dead corpse in sin. That's all you had to offer. And yet God loved you. That's what his forgiveness is like. And so is there any possible way that we can match that forgiveness? Is there any possible way that you can get close to forgiving as much as God does? I submit that of course not. But we can and we must imitate him in it. Therefore, even as God in Christ forgave you, be imitators of God. We should also see here that God is commanding us to do something that he has promised that he will do in us. God is not commanding you to do something in in terms of imitating him or forgiving others. He's not commanding you to do something that he himself doesn't do. He's not commanding you to do something that he also doesn't 
give you the grace to do. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul says that whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God says in in Ephesians, Paul says, be imitators of God. Imitate God. Be like God. And then in, in Romans, Paul tells us that actually God is making you more like him. Imitate God. But God is actually doing it. God is making you like him. He's making you into the image of Christ. And so imitate him. And this, we see this all throughout scripture. God commands things and then he does it. God commands things of you and then he works through you to do it. Paul says this in Philippians. God is the one working through you to will and to do according to his pleasure. And therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're supposed to work these things out to do these things that God has commanded us to do fully knowing and trusting that God is the one at work in us. And so as we go and we imitate God, we ought to, we ought to remember and recognize, I need to imitate God. I need to forgive like God forgives, trusting that he's actually working in me to accomplish that. Because again, it's all by grace. We're not saved by doing it ourselves. It all comes from him. And so as we, th- this then ties in with what I was uh, talking about in the introduction. How are we to do this? How are we to imitate God, to be imitators of God? Well, we will naturally imitate him more and more as God works in us. And how does he work in us? Well, he works in us as he draws us to himself and as we worship him more and more. We will imitate God more and more as we learn to love him more and more because you imitate the one that you love. Our imitation, therefore, is downstream of our worship of God. Our imitation of God is a result of our worship of him. This is why it is important to to gather together with the saints on the Lord's Day week after week after week after week. Why do we do that? Why do we do it over and over and over again? Wouldn't once a year or so be enough? Give sort of a token to God, worship him, acknowledge him, bring our tithes and offerings to him, but then be good for the rest of the year. No, we come before him week after week after week because we want to imitate him. We want to learn to imitate him. And so you come here every week and we go through this service of confessing your sin. We're called into God's presence and you're reminded that you're a bunch of sinners. And so you need to confess your sins. And so we get down on our knees and we confess our sins and you hear the proclamation, your sins are forgiven. And you hear that week after week after week after week. Why? So that you can go and imitate God. So you can go and Forgive like he forgives. Everything that you brought with you into this room this week is forgiven. It's all forgiven. You're not, you don't walk out with any of it on you if you've confessed it to the Lord. It's all forgiven. And now you go and treat others like that. You, you go and treat your spouse like that, your siblings like that, your children like that. We naturally imitate him more and more as we worship him, as we follow him, because our imitation is downstream. It's a result of our worship of God. Paul also says that we imitate, to be imitators of God as dear children. That's in the New King James. Other translations have as beloved children, which is a more, more literal translation there. Be imitators of God as beloved children children. We imitate God because we are loved, right? We imitate God because we are loved, not in order to be loved. Now, of course, we should seek to please God, but we seek to please him more because we understand that he already is pleased with us as his beloved children. And, of course, an obvious application of this is parents to your children. Do you demand that your children obey you so that you will love them? Or are you growing in imitating God in loving them unconditionally? Loving them, expecting that they will obey you knowing that they are loved children. 
Your love for them actually invites them to obey you, to follow you, to respect you. It's not the other way around. Don't demand that your children earn your love any more than you have earned your father's love. We imitate God understanding our place as adopted heirs of the inheritance. And of course then as parents, the the way that we do that is by understanding how much we've been loved. How you've been loved in spite of yourself with all of your failings. And if that's true, then you can go and you can love those around you beginning with those in your home. We imitate God Again, particularly in how we forgive because of who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. Again, Paul lays that foundation in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3 so that now he can say, imitate God. Do you want to know what it looks like to imitate God more? You want to study that? Go and rest in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. What does it look like to imitate God in forgiving and loving those that he has given to you? Go, go sit in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 again. And so building on this then, Paul says that we walk in love in verse 2. So be imitators of God. I don't think here Paul is um, sort of stacking these, or, or uh, this is not a logical progression, I don't think, in, in, this, in these verses. where Paul says, be imitators of God, and then walk in love. I think he's more layering these things on top of one another. One of the ways that we imitate God is walking in love as Christ also has loved us. Love here then clearly is defined not by any standards that the world can give us, but simply by what Christ has done. What is our standard? What is the Christian standard for love? Well, it's, it's what Paul says here. In verse 2, as Christ also loved us, has loved us and given himself for us. In Christ's love, he gave up his own life so that he might be a sacrificial substitute for you. So that he might take your place on the altar. In the Old Testament, it was sheep and goats and bulls and doves and pigeons. Those were placed on the altar in your place. But they were insufficient. The priest had to do it day after day after day. Christ has come, and once for all, he is the sacrifice for you. And he's on the altar so that you don't have to be. Because our sins demand death. Our sins demand blood before God. And so Christ gave his own life for you. Jesus tells us also in John 15 that no greater love has any man than this, than that he should lay his life down for his friends. And of course, Jesus, above all, demonstrates this. Essentially then, Christian love, what Paul is calling us to here, to, to walk in love, Christian love says, my life for yours. My life for yours. And in fact, If we don't walk in this love, this love like Christ, um, and this love, of course, is first towards God. We we love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then towards our neighbors, we love our neighbors as ourselves. And as you study the New Testament, you see pretty clearly that the first neighbors that the, the New Testament authors are talking about are the people of God, right? The the brethren, the church. If we're not walking in this love towards one another, then should we expect God to be pleased by any of our duties or any of our works? Remember, Jesus tells uh, in Matthew chapter 5, let's, let's turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. This is in the context of Jesus talking about how murder uh, isn't just an outward action, but rather begins in the heart. When you hate your brother, Jesus says you have already murdered him in your heart. But verse 20, in verse 23, Jesus says, if you bring your gift to the altar, 
If you're coming to the temple and bringing a gift, maybe it's a, a gift before God of thanksgiving, maybe it's a sacrifice of some kind because of your sin, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, that there's, there's some break in fellowship between you and your brother, then leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. If you're coming to the altar before God to worship him, to be reconciled with God, and you remember that your brother has something against you, that there's some break in fellowship, some sin between you and a brother, stop your worship and go be reconciled with your brother. Stop coming before God, seeking fellowship with him if there's something between you and your brother. As as a side note, I think one great application of this is um, uh, every week we talk about the um, opportunity to bring tithes and offerings to the Lord. Don't bring your tithes here if you have something against your brother. Jesus says not to. Don't, Don't bring your tithes and offerings here with something between you and your brother. Because Jesus makes it very clear, you can't love God. John talks about this as well in 1 John chapter 1 and 2. You can't love God and hate your brother. You can't love God and have something between you and your brother. It doesn't work. Because the first and second commandment, the first and second greatest commandment go together. Love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, God calls us to come before him and worship him. He calls us to come and bring our tithes and offerings before him. We are to come and bring our gift to the altar. That's also commanded. So so what do we do? Go first, be reconciled with your brother, and then come back. And then come and worship the Lord. This is what it means to walk in love. And we must remember, of course, that um, walking in love saying my life for yours, it's, it's easy to think of that in, a, in an ultimate sense, right? I think many of us, whether we're really being honest with ourselves or not, would like to think that if a shooter came into the church, we would be the one to jump in the way. I think a lot of times we kid ourselves. We like to think that way about ourselves. It's not really true. And one of the ways that you can tell that it's not really true is because would you, would you be the first one to... Help, help somebody, you know, when the crayons get spilled everywhere. Are you jumping in there? Are you loving one another in these little things? Are you, when somebody says, uh, um, when, when somebody says a spiteful word to you, are you able to lay your life down? When your kids are disobedient, are you willing to lay your life down? When your parents are being hard on you, are you willing to lay your life down? And say, my life for yours. Are you like Christ in sacrificing yourself for your neighbor, for your family, for the people in this room? And if you can't do it there, you're not going to do it in the extreme situations. We cannot, of course, and the greatest, the greatest love that Jesus has for us, demonstrates for us, is his laying his life down for our salvation. And of course, we can't imitate him in providing atonement, in providing salvation for one another. But again, just like we can't imitate God in his extensive forgiveness or the extent of his forgiveness, but we can and we must imitate him. We must imitate the one that we love. We must imitate the one who loved us. So walk in love. But Paul contrasts this With a number of things in verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul says, uh, and in, in, uh, right in line with the put off and put on language that Paul has been using, he says here, be imitators of God, walk in love, but, so that's what you put on, and then put off fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. This is because all sexual immorality Uh, Sexual immorality being any sort of sexual act outside of or in defiance of the covenant of marriage. 
all sexual immorality, and Paul adds here, all covetousness, is not Christ-like love. I think this is very important for us to understand in our day uh, when we have um, sexual immorality, not just all around us, it's always been all around us, but sexual immorality being promoted and normalized and uh, demanded in ways that are not new in terms of the world, but new for our culture in recent years. And what's, what's really amazing about this is that Paul's writing to the Ephesians. Here's a little bit of historical context here. Who were the Ephesians? Well, the church at Ephesus was, uh, or Ephesus was a Roman city in Asia Minor, which was the center of the cult of Diana, goddess Diana, who was, and she had her temple, the main temple to the goddess Diana in Ephesus. And Diana was the fertility goddess. And the worship of Diana was highly sexualized. She had, there were lots of temple prostitutes um, in Ephesus. This was just the normal way of worshiping Diana. If you go and read through Acts, when Paul gets to Ephesus, he complete, there's huge riots that break out as he's preaching the gospel in Ephesus because he's disrupting the economy that's built on the worship of Diana. Okay? This economy that's built on and centered around this worship of this goddess who demands sexual immorality. That, that's the people that Paul's writing to. So bear that in mind. I think it's so fitting for us then. Right? That, that describes our culture very well. Providential somehow. Okay, so bear, bear that context in mind then as we move into verses three and four and five. Sexual immorality and covetousness, I think you can describe them as love, right? There is a sort of love that is going on there. And, and this is important, it is sacrificial, Sexual immorality or covetousness is love and it is sacrificial. But it is a love that says, your life for mine. Do you see the, do you see the difference? Christ-like love is my life for yours. Sexual immorality of any sort at some level is saying, your life for mine. Your success, your opportunities, your status whatever it is, for mine. I'm willing to sacrifice what you have to feed my pleasure. Same with covetousness. Covetousness is demanding and grasping at the expense of what others have. These loves are disordered, they are deformed, and they are self-centered, and therefore they are destructive. And this is, um, we tend to, uh, sometimes we tend to think that God's commands for us, especially his prohibitive commands, are harsh. That God is demanding a lot of us. That he is restricting us from a lot. We need to realize, though, um, that yes, he is, but he's, de- he's restricting us in the same way that a father restricts his child from going and laying his hands on the top of the stove. He's doing it for our good to restrict us, to limit our freedom so that we don't destroy ourselves. Because sexual, sexual immorality, in any of its forms, and there are lots of them, are all destructive, self-destructive. Not to mention the destruction that you bring to those around you because of it. Adulteries, lustful hearts, pornography, other sexual perversions, homosexuality, transgenderism, all of it is self-destructive, first and foremost. Secondly, it's destructive of those around you, and this is because it is a love, and it is sacrificial, but it's a sacrifice to yourself. It's not a sacrifice of yourself, it's a sacrifice to yourself. And Paul says that such perverse loves, 
which really are not loves in the end. They should be so unfamiliar to the Christian that they are not even named within Christian community. What Paul doesn't mean by this is that there's some sort of taboo on speaking about such things or that, there's not, um, that, that we don't mention them or talk about them because Scripture talks about them. Right? Scripture, we're, we're reading it right here. Scripture's talking about it. So what does Paul mean? I think he, he means that in Christian community, if we're walking in love, if we're learning to forgive like God forgives, if, again, back up to chapter 4, verse 32, if we're learning to be kind to one another, tenderhearted to one another, like God does, like God is, then these kinds of perverse loves are utterly unthinkable for a Christian. Interesting here that Paul uses not just the term Christian or believers, but he says that they are unfitting. They're uh, they're not to be named among you as is fitting for saints. Saints, we've mentioned this before as we've gone through Ephesians, but saints is not some sort of elite class of Christian. Saint just means holy one. Again, not in some sort of elite status, but rather um, someone who has been set apart. Every one of us, if we are in Christ, every one of us is a saint. You are a saint. You're a holy one. And that's why then it is unfitting for these things to even be named among Christian community, to be recognized or given any place in Christian community. Because you are in Christ, because he laid his life down to purchase and to cleanse you, therefore, sexual immorality, again, in all of its various forms, and all covetousness are part of the old man which must be put off. It must be repented of. And if you find yourself, um, both with the sexual immorality and the lust, if you find yourself trapped in that, it needs to be put off. And, And you won't Apart from, I mean, it's all God's grace, but apart from an unusual extension of God's grace, you won't do it alone. You need to seek help. That's why you have elders and shepherds here. They are here to help you, to walk with you as you shake off this old man. Same with covetousness, though. We, we tend to think that covetousness is not a big deal, right? I can, I can covet that house. I can covet that car. I can cover my neighbor's lawn, which somehow he's been able to keep from turning into a marsh this year, right? I can, I, it's really easy to covet the things that I don't have or that others have. God takes covetousness very seriously. It's one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> There's a reason he put it front and center. And this is fascinating. Paul in verse four, or sorry, in verse five, identifies covetousness with idolatry, Right? He says, no covetous man is going to inherit the kingdom of God. He says that in verse 5. And he says, no covetous man who is an idolater. Covetous equals idolatry. Covetousness equals idolatry in Paul's mind. He says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Covetousness is idolatry. And what's really fascinating to me about this is covetousness is the 10th commandment, right? Thou shalt not covet. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. No idolatry. First commandment. 10th commandment. No covetousness. Paul says they equal each other. It's the same thing. Your covetousness of your neighbor, of, of another person, is idolatry before God. And so all of this, covetousness, sexual immorality, uncleanness, should not be mentioned among saints. It's so unthinkable for God's people. Now, obviously, that's not where we're at because it needs to be dealt with all the time. But, but bear this in mind. That's how you should be viewing your covetousness, your sexual immorality. It is completely unfitting for you as a saint to be covetous, to be sexually immoral. And so you are going to pursue the Lord. You're going to walk in love. You're going to be imitating God in order to put these things off. Uh, It falls right in line with this. It follows directly then that any filthy or foolish talk or coarse jesting is unfitting for saints as well. 
crude, joking, uh, uh, double entendres, uh, uh, making light of sexual immorality, Paul says, is not fitting for saints. The way that we talk matters. God, God cares. God cares. And, and part of why he cares is because um, uh, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. You shall not bear his name in vain. God's name is on you. You bear his name. Are you talking like him? Because when people look at you, if you've been baptized, if people are looking at you, you are preaching about God by the way that you live. Are you talking like him? Or would people look at you and then look at the God of the Bible and say, yeah, those don't ma- I don't think those match. Those don't go together. These are not the same gods. Um, God is not opposed to humor. God is not opposed to cleverness. And he's not prudish about sexual things. Read Proverbs chapter 5. Read Song of Solomon. God's not prudish about sex. But he's very careful with it. In Hebrews, he says that the marriage bed is honorable. The sexual union is honorable. It's not something to be made light of. So God is not opposed to humor or cleverness, but filthiness is not made less filthy for being clever. Just because it's funny, just because it gets laughs or makes you fit in with a crowd, doesn't mean it's less filthy. Instead, Christians put on the new man. We have been forgiven and given much, and therefore, Paul makes very clear in verse 4 that thanksgiving is the center of how we, of how we put these things off. Thanksgiving is the right disposition and expression of the Christian because we've been given so much. I find this, this is so helpful, I think, if you are uh, battling any of a number of sins in your life, I think as we, as we go through this list that Paul has here, it really covers quite a lot. Any sort of sexual immorality, which Jesus also identifies as lust in your heart, any sort of covetousness, any sort of filthy talking, coarse jesting, all of these things are to be replaced by giving thanks. Paul teaches us the same thing in Philippians with regards to anxiety. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Thanksgiving is, I think, God's antidote to temptation and to sin. You see it as you study scripture, as you study what God calls his people to it comes up over and over and over again. I'm, I'm struggling with this particular sin. Maybe it's, maybe it's your filthy mouth. You know, you, you've been working in a job where you're surrounded by people that just talk dirty all the time. And you can't help it. Maybe you're able to control it at home or at church because you're around Christian people and you're putting your Christian mouth on. You're like Mr. Potato Head, right? Sunday, I put my Christian mouth on. When I go to work, I put a different mouth on. Well, how do you solve that? Because you can't live that way. That's serving two masters. Right? That's idolatry. You can't live that way. So how do you fix it? Paul says, give thanks. Right? And, and what would that do to your coworkers? It would drive them nuts. Right? <laughs> this guy won't cuss anymore. He's just thankful all the time. It would make them angry. And glory to God for that, right? And then and you can tell them why you're so thankful. Because you understand what you've been given. You understand how much you have been forgiven. Same thing with your uh, struggle with pornography. When you can't stop yourself, or you think you can't stop yourself from going and looking again, and lusting in your heart, and lusting with your body, instead, give thanks. Stop. Give thanks until you can't anymore. Uh, my mom, one of the best things that my mom ever gave me was this, this idea of 
when I was tempted to complain about whatever, she'd stop me and say, Tyler, I want you to stop. I want you to give thanks for five things. And it's amazing when you're caught in sin how hard it is to come up with five things, right? But when you do, what's also amazing is how God works in you. God is working in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And so give thanks. Stop and give thanks. Stop your mouth. Stop your thoughts. Stop that action. Stop your hand. Stop, your, stop that sin that is so easily entangling you. For just a moment, stop and give thanks. Because you can't give thanks to God and carry on in that sin. You can't. You won't be able to do it. Thanksgiving is the antidote to sexual temptation and covetousness. Paul gives then a sober warning in verse 5. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Why does this matter? Why does it matter to be dealing with your sin, particularly your covetousness, sexual sin, those kinds of things? Why does it matter? Because God wants you in his kingdom. And you won't be there apart from God working in you, apart from his saving grace. You can't serve that master of yourself and your lusts and serve the holy God. Now we know the promises throughout scripture of forgiveness for those who repent. 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11 is a wonderful message of hope for those that are caught in sexual sin because Paul lists out all these different sins, not just sexual sin, but all kinds of other sins, anger and malice as well. And, and, and he lists them out and he says, they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. They won't be there with the Father in heaven. But then Paul says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. But you have been sanctified. You have been justified. God has called you out and he's made you a saint. He's made you his son, his daughter, and he loves you and he's not going to let go of you. But that promise you, you can only rest in that promise. You can only have assurance in that promise if you're dealing with your sin. If you have sin in your life that is dealing with you instead of you dealing with it, that it's running you, you don't have assurance of your salvation. If, if you have sin in your life that you are not dealing with, then you ought not to have assurance of your salvation. And I'm a full-blown Calvinist, Right? I believe in the eternal sovereign election of God, predestinating us, preserving us to the end. And I have absolutely no problem saying that you as a professing Christian, if you have hidden sin in your life that is running you, that is ruling you, you may not, you will not have assurance of your salvation. Because you cannot serve two gods. R.C. Sproul says, if the basic characteristic of your life is sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness, then as long as you remain in that state, you remain out of the kingdom of God. Again, this is why Paul explicitly identifies covetousness with idolatry. Right? Those who are covetous in any of these ways, they're idolaters. And because they're idolaters, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Our sinful hearts then, verse 6, are tempted to be deceived by empty words, excuses, and voices that tell us that a little filthy talking, just a little bit of lust, a little sexual immorality, a little loss of self-control, a, a little covetousness, it won't really matter much. It doesn't really matter. Or even we're told by, our, we tell ourselves, we're told by the culture that many of these things are good in and of themselves. It's good to pursue those things at least a little bit. But if we are in Christ and if we truly believe 
As Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 6, that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is not talking about the food that you eat. It's talking about sexual immorality. Okay? If your body really is the temple of the Holy Spirit, then we ought to put these things to death. It's not fitting for saints. We can think, or we, we think, we lie to ourselves that we can dabble in sin and not get wet. Sin is a tar baby. Like Br'er Rabbit going and punching the tar baby, thinking he can just knock it silly, and he's stuck. And he keeps punching it, he keeps attacking it. What happens? He gets more and more stuck, more and more entangled, more and more covered in it. That's what your sin is like. You can't dabble in it and think you're okay. A proverb says, can a man take fire to his bosom and not be burned? Can you walk on hot coals and your feet not be seared? No, the wrath of God comes against such disobedience. Both in final judgment, we know from Revelation 21, where it lists a number of these things and says that these are those that are cast into the lake of fire. But there's also present consequences. Proverbs 13, 15 says that the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of the unfaithful is hard. It's difficult because God brings consequences. Romans 1, 27, where Paul's talking about how man has rejected God and was not thankful. Interesting there. He did not glorify God as God, nor was thankful, but instead gave himself over to his lusts. Then Paul says that they have in their bodies the consequences of their sin. We see that in lots of the sexual immorality, the effects of it in our bodies. The STDs and whatnot that are the result of sexual immorality. There are consequences for our sin. And often God uses these consequences to turn people to himself. This hard discipline to turn people to himself. But we need to realize that, that this is the, it is the wrath of God, it's the judgment of God upon that sin. But we are to be imitators of God, walking in love, giving thanks to God. Those are the three positive commands in this section. Walk, or be imitators of God, walk in love, giving thanks to him. Not imitators of the world, walking in our lusts and grasping for ourselves. The former is love and worship of God. The latter is love and worship of idols. And so in, in conclusion here, um, we need to see that imitation, imitation is an inescapable concept. You will imitate someone. We are creatures and worshipers by nature. God created us and he created us. The, the um, uh, ancient theologians would talk about man as homo adorans. Worshiping man. That's what man is created to be, a worshiper. And because of this, we will always be worshiping. We will always be imitating some God. And if we are not a forgiving people, if we do not walk in love, we are not imitating the one true God. We either bear his image well or we seek to shake off his image by imitating some other God. Basically, you imitate what you worship. And so, the litmus test then is to consider your works. Consider your attitudes. Consider your words. Consider your relationships. Whom are you imitating? Whom are you imitating? What God do you look like? But consider this also. Do you know God's free grace? Do you know his abundant forgiveness for you? Do you know his love for you because of the death of Jesus? And do you know his pleasure over you? If you don't know these things, then the call is simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, and come know this God. If you do know these things, then be imitators of him. Walk in love. Give thanks. Repent and believe. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father, teach us to take heed to your word. Your commands here are good 
and your warnings are severe, and we need them. Teach us to imitate you in your forgiveness and your love, your unconditional love for us. Teach us to do this by first opening our eyes to see and understand this love, this great love with which you love us. Father, I pray that you would keep us from worshiping the idols of our lusts. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit working in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the names for communion, there's a few different names. We call it the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper or communion. Another name is the Eucharist. Um, This is not strictly a Roman Catholic name, although you might be familiar with it from a Roman Catholic context. But the reason it's called the Eucharist is simply because at this meal, Jesus gave thanks and Eucharist comes from the Greek word that means to give thanks. Jesus gave thanks as part of instituting this meal with his disciples. He gave thanks for, suffer, for the suffering that he was about to go through. His body broken and his blood shed. And he was going to go through it for those who follow him. He gave thanks to walk in love in this way. He gave thanks to lay down his life in this way. And we imitate him here every week. We, give, we come here and we give thanks for his suffering and his death on the cross and the union that we have with him because of it. But we should also imitate him in his view towards his people. So we come here and we give thanks for his body and his blood, just like he did. But we should extend the way that we imitate him. Jesus gave thanks that he could suffer for you. Jesus effectively said, my life for yours my blood for yours. And as we come to this table, we, the body of Christ, should imitate him in this. We do imitate him in this. We come to this table of thanksgiving, declaring the Lord's death till he comes, declaring our willingness to suffer for him. So we are declaring, as we come and we partake of communion, we are declaring to Jesus, my life for you, my blood for you. And if we are declaring this to him, then we are also declaring it to his body, to his church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this, of course, starts not with brothers and sisters across the world in other countries and contexts. It certainly includes them. But it starts first at this table with this declaration that you are ready to lay your life down, lay your interests and your desires down for the sake of the people that are sitting next to you. And if we understand all that we have been given, then coming here to this table and making this declaration is a real joy. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So the charge to you this week, as you go out into this week, remember that you came here this morning because you were called as God's people. And you were called, and coming into his presence, you confessed your sins. And what I said in the sermon is really true. The sins that you confessed... The sins that you confessed to your father this morning, as you leave here, they're done. They're completely forgiven. So now go and forgive like that. Go and imitate God and walk in love and give thanks for the forgiveness that you've been given. And hear now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen.